0: You may be seated. I uh, want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, this uh, this morning is a little different service uh, for me. Uh, the, I don't uh, often um, have these kinds of services, but this one is for me. Usually it's, uh, it's something that the Lord will put on my heart to teach and to impress upon the people or something that I'm aware that the, that the people need by the Spirit of God, or, or whatever the case is. But this one is different. The Lord's trying to get some things across to me about spiritual dominion. And, um, and it, I guess, well, certainly it's not a matter of guess. Certainly I could teach anything. Give me any subject and I can go. But uh, anything that I know about anyway. But um, so I could certainly do that. But I learned a long time ago to, if that I'll, if I preach the things that are on my heart, then they come out alive. You know, it's uh there's a lot of knowledge you can get about the Bible and from the Bible, but you know as well as I do that not every service is alive. Not every teaching is full of life. But the word of God is supposed to be that way. So I'm gonna share some things with you that, that, that uh that the Lord's trying to get across to me, some things that, that I'm dealing with and and uh my ultimate goal here is that by the end of the service I'll see what I need to see. So you're just here for filler. Now, I hope that's not the case, but we'll we'll let you judge that for yourself. Genesis chapter one, verse twenty six, and God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness." So, image and likeness not, must not be the same thing. We think of both of those as what something looks like, but uh, but that's not the case. One may mean something related to what God looks like, because He did make man to look like Himself. We know when uh, when uh, Moses asked to see the glory of God in Exodus chapter thirty three. Um, God put him, the Lord said, uh, well, you can't see my face, so God must have a face. He said, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and put my hand over you. So God must have a hand. And then he said, I'll I'll pass by you and let you see my back parts. Well, in order for something to have back parts, you must have front parts or, or else you wouldn't be able to distinguish parts from parts. Right? So it sounds like God has a face, hands, back parts, and front parts just like we do. So I don't have any question, no doubt in my mind that he's talking about image or likeness from the standpoint of looking similar to, but the other has to mean in his same class of being. Psalm two, verse eight says that when God made the made the, the made man this uh, this uh, event that is being recorded in Genesis chapter one, the angel said, "What is man that thou art mindful of him?" So whatever. Class of being that God intended for man to be in, which was in his own class of being, a spirit being. The angels were flabbergasted by this. It was something they'd never seen of before, something they'd never heard of before. Whatever earth, whatever um, uh, existence there was prior to, and the Bible tells us some about it, that Satan was here on the earth and he was a ruler of some type. And he rebelled against God and took um, a third of the angels. And and, uh, and and that doesn't take into account the people or the, the, the beings They were here on the earth prior to that because it talks about merchandising and trafficking and and buying and selling and different things like that. Whatever that was wasn't man. Uh, For me, I don't have any problem with science. The biggest problem I have with science is science trying to explain the Bible. That's impossible. But there are things that they found scientifically like the caveman or, or whatever else like that. I don't have any problem with any of that. That could have been before Adam and Eve. I don't have any problem with science trying to say that the earth is billions of years old. That's entirely possible. What we know for sure is that man is 6,000 years old. What was here before that, who knows? I don't really care. But to think that any of that stuff disproves the Bible is just stupid. That's like saying your owner's manual of your car proves something about your car that you can see isn't true. I mean, it's just It's just nuts. So anyway, I don't have any problem with any of that. So when God said, let us make man in our own image, he's talking about a class of being. He's talking about a spirit being. Let's make man as a spirit being. He'll look like me, yeah, but let's make him in our class of being. And the angels are flabbergasted by that. What? You're going to do what? You're going to make this thing called man? We don't know what it is because we've never seen one before. Never been one in existence. But you're going to make this man in your class of being? Well, what does it mean to be in God's class of being? Notice what God's intent was. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over all the cattle, or over the cattle, and, notice this phrase, over all the earth. Now the word dominion, uh, well, I'll, I'll finish this, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So you have dominion over creeps. Now, this word dominion is used several times throughout the Old Testament. From the, uh, the word, This word in the Hebrew is used several times throughout the Old Testament. And it's always translated in one of three ways. One is dominion. Another is to rule. And then uh, the, the third way that it's used or translated is to bear rule. So literally what he's saying, I don't care which one of those words you use. He says, let us make man after our own image and our own likeness. And let him rule, bear rule and have dominion. Over all the earth. The birds, the fish, creeping things, but literally over all the earth. When he says over all the earth, it means over all of creation. Over everything that's been created, God's plan and and that he carries out, was he makes everything before he makes man. He creates the earth and the fullness thereof, makes all the trees he's going to make, makes all the grass he's going to make, makes all the birds and all the fish and all the everything else that he's going to make, and then he says, now it's ready for man. Folks, I want you to understand something. That shows God's attitude toward provision. God doesn't set you in a desert place and say, Well, make the best you can. He made more grass than man could walk barefoot through. He made more trees than man could sit in the shade of. He made more flowers than he'd ever be able to smell. He made more water and food than he'd ever be able to eat and drink. And then he made man. God's plan is provision for wherever he puts you. God's plan is provision wherever he puts you. Well, what kind of provision? Abundant provision. More than you can use. Now, why did God make more than man could use? It's kind of funny, every now and then we'll go through, every decade or so, we'll go through where people will talk about shortages, this is running out, the rainforest is going away, you know, the, the ozone layer in the, in the sky, the hole in the ozone layer is bigger, and so we're running out of air. Folks, the earth's never going to run out of anything. The reason because, The reason for that is because God made it. He made it to be self-sustaining. He made it to be reproducing. Who in the world could have come up with the idea that the carbon dioxide that we exhale would feed the trees to produce oxygen? But, of course, that just evolved. That just happened. So God said, let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion, bear rule or have rule over all the earth. Folks, I want you to understand something. In this context, God made Adam to be the God of this world. Now, by that, I don't mean the creator of the world. Adam didn't didn't have the opportunity to look around after he was made and say, Well, I don't like this. Let's make it a different way. He didn't change the world, but he did have control of it. He had rule over the earth. Now, let's read down another couple of verses. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, meaning females have just as much dominion in the earth as males do. Now, that may not be true in this world system. They learn early, don't they? <laughs> but that's God's attitude. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. In other words, everybody's equal as far as God's concerned. That may not be true where the world and the world system is concerned. But that, the world system is not reflective of God. So he said, in the image of him... In an image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish. Please notice the word replenish. He did not say populate. He said replenish. The word re implies, and you look up this word, the word re implies there was something here before that filled the earth. Now refill it. So if you backed up to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 where it says the earth was without form and void, God didn't make it that way. It wasn't that way originally. Now, whatever else was here before then, I don't know. It's subject of speculation and and some interesting topics and, and discussions and so forth. But really, who knows? I guess maybe when we get to heaven, God will show us. If it's important to us, God will show us what happened back then. But there was something here. Because God said, replenish the earth. So there had to be some kind of beings here on the earth prior to man. But they weren't man. If they were man, then the angels would have said, well, here we go again. Are you out there? So God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Please notice the next two words. And subdue it. And subdue it. Why would you have to subdue something if everything was going to go your way and God had an ultimate plan and it's only going to work out the way God intends and so forth? See, so much of the church world has this idea that whatever the will of God is, is going to happen no matter what. Then why did God tell man to subdue the earth? Why didn't God say, now don't worry, I've got everything under control? Because he just delivered control of the earth unto man. So he says, subdue it. Now the word subdue literally means to keep it under your control. To keep it under your control. Replenish the earth, be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth and keep the earth under your control. So please notice what God's original intent was. And God never changes. God's intent was for man to have control here on the earth. For man to have dominion. For man to bear rule here on the earth. Now let me ask you a question. That's easy for us to imagine when it's just Adam and Eve. Because they're controlling the world and there's nobody else there. But what about when other people start being born? Was God's intent for man to control the earth meaning control everybody in the earth? Well, if that were the case, then he would have just been giving Adam and Eve dominion and not anybody else. But notice he's talking about mankind. This is his intent for mankind, not just for the first of mankind, which was Adam and Eve. His intent was for all men to have dominion or bear rule in the earth. Well, how are we going to bear rule or how is any man going to bear rule if there are other men involved? Does that mean to to conquer one another? No, that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was for everybody to have dominion or bear rule in their life. Now, to the extent that my life overlaps yours, we're going to have to come to some kind of understanding. Are you out there? Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Here's this word dominion again. Over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. He's not talking about other men. He's talking about the created beings. Animals and so forth. Now let me ask you a question. What is dominion? And how do you get it? If God's intent was for man to have dominion. And God never changes. So that means if God's original intent was for man to have dominion here on the earth. To bear rule here on the earth. Not over one another but in our own lives. Then what is dominion? And how in the world do you get it? Well Dominion. As we said, is very simply rule. God intends for everybody to rule, but how do you get that rule? Dominion can be obtained one of two ways: it can either be conferred upon someone by someone that has greater dominion, or it can be gained through conquest. Now let's look at our own situations and try to explain what what we mean by that. I've got children. My children do not have dominion over the family finances. I have dominion over the family finances. My daughter is grinning she would like to have that. Now my daughter has dominion in a limited measure over finances that are provided for her. She has dominion over her own allowance and the money that she makes. But even at that we require certain things. We require her to pay her tithes and we require her to, to save certain amounts of the, the money that she has. Now, there's for several reasons. Number one, we want her to learn to tithe and learn the benefits of tithing. But secondly, we want her to learn the benefits of saving too and to have some money left over from the stuff that she, that she makes and the disposable income she has. So she has dominion, but it's in a limited measure from my dominion where family finances are concerned. Now, I have every right. I, I don't think it would be a good way for me to go, but I have every right to demand that every dollar that anybody in my household makes becomes part of the family pile. I think that's a good way to make sure my kids move out as soon as possible. (laughs) But I could do that, couldn't I? God could have done the same thing, couldn't he? Instead of God saying, let us make man and let him have dominion, God could have said, forget it, I'm in charge. I've had a problem with people being in charge before, like Satan taking a third of the angels. I'm not going to risk it ever again, so I'm going to make man to do just what I want him to do and only what I want him to do. I'll be in charge. Now that's what a lot of the church world seems to think God does. Because they sit back and whatever happens, they say, well, that must have been the will of God. Well, if that's the way things worked, then why did God tell Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth and subdue it, keep it under their control? There must have been some force that God knew was out there, whether man did yet or not. There must have been some force that God knew was out there that was going to try to take that control from him. And of course, that force is the devil. Well, that's a good lesson for us then, shouldn't it be? To recognize that there is a force out there even though we may have dominion in a limited measure. And we'll need to find out what the limits of that are or would be. But there are forces out there that are going to try to take away your dominion. Okay, so dominion is either conferred in the case with family finances that I just used. The example of family finances. I confer certain degrees of dominion. My wife and I confer dominion to a limited amount in a limited measure with our children. Why? We can do that because we have a greater degree of dominion where family finances are concerned. Well, God has all dominion. And so since the earth is his, he created it. It belongs to him. Even though the devil must have done something to mess it up before, earlier on, God recreates the earth, literally, in six days. Makes it full, puts man in the middle of it, gives him instruction and says, now you're in charge here. In other words, this is your part of the universe that you have dominion over. I'm glad he didn't give man dominion over the heavens. I'm glad he didn't give man dominion over heaven where he lives, the third heaven. But he gave man limited dominion and that limited dominion was identified by the boundaries of the earth. He said literally anything that goes on here on the earth you're in control of. Keep it under your control. Now the second way, the only two ways, one is by conferring dominion that you get it. The second way you can get dominion is by conquest. That's what Satan tried to do when he rebelled against God. He tried to take dominion over everything. Heaven and earth. When he rebelled against God. That didn't work out well. But we see that same principle in practice where men try to dominate or control or conquer one another here on the earth. One kingdom, one country will go to war with another country and take territory. What are they doing? They're usurping dominion or control or rule over the country or the territory that they conquer. Well, nobody's going to conquer God. But it's good to keep that in mind because that's going to work later on. The problem is this Second Corinthians 4 4 says now that Satan is the God of this world. It says whom the God of this world, in whom the God of this world blinds people's minds lest they receive the glorious light of the gospel. In other words, he blinds people's minds to keep them from being saved. How can he do that? Because he's the God of this world. How in the world did he become the God of this world? Turn with me over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. It says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I don't know about you folks, but that was not good news when I found out that sometimes the Holy Ghost will lead you into the wilderness. I want the Holy Ghost to always lead me into victory. And some people preach that when you're following God, He'll always always lead you from one level of victory to a greater level of victory to a greater level of victory to a greater level of victory. The problem with that teaching is, what happens when you run into a hard place? Where was God's level of victory? When Jesus was filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized by John in the Jordan River, and the Holy Ghost came upon Him, He said that He was anointed. He says later on in this chapter, verse 18, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Him because He's anointed Him. So it must have been the anointing or the power of God that came on Him. Which tells us something about Jesus. Let's stop. Think about this for a minute. If Jesus is operating here on the earth. As the son of God. How can you anoint God? If Jesus is operating the way most of the church world thinks. That he was the son of God. And therefore he was able to do miracles and signs and wonders. Because he was the son of God. Why does he need to be anointed? Why was it necessary for John the Baptist to baptize him in the Jordan River? Why does the Bible give us record that everybody that was there saw the Holy Spirit coming down on him like a dove? Doesn't mean he looked like a bird. It means something flew from the air down and landed on Jesus. That something was the anointing. It was the Holy Ghost. And from that point forward, Jesus began to do signs and wonders and miracles. If he's the Son of God and operating here on the earth as the Son of God, why does he need to be anointed? And who would be in a position to anoint him? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost are co-equal. So who's greater than Jesus to be able to anoint him? But in fact, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. And he came to the earth, he humbled himself and came to the earth as a man. That means he was a man just like Adam was a man. When Jesus came to the earth, the only difference between him and Adam with the way in which they were born. Adam was created made from the dust of the earth. Jesus was born of a virgin. That's the only difference between Adam and Jesus. That's why Paul calls Adam the first Adam and Jesus the second Adam. Cause they're representatives. So therefore Jesus according to the Bible according to the scripture emptied himself of all of his heavenly power and glory. And he came to the earth to fulfill God's original plan. That original plan was, the Bible says, Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth. In other words, before God ever made the earth. Not just made man, before God ever made the earth, the heavens and everything else in the beginning. His plan was, we're going to create this being called man that the angels don't have any clue about. And we're going to cause Jesus to die as a sacrifice for man so that I, God, can live in him. It was always God's plan. So Jesus had to come to the earth, not as God, even though he was. What I'm saying is, please don't, I hope this is not misunderstood. I'm not trying to throw off and say Jesus was not God or was not the son of God. Of course he was. I'm saying he wasn't operating on the earth as the son of God. That's why the Bible tells him over and over and over again, the son of man, 60 some odd times and only four or five, four, five times does it refer to him as the son of God. Because Jesus identified with man more than he identified with God. He recognized and said, and he got in trouble with this every time that he said it, my father and I are one. What he's saying is, it's God inside me. But I'm not operating as God. It's not even me that's doing the work, he said. It's the father in me that's doing the work. Well, how was the father in him? Because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. Are you out there? I know a lot of people have trouble with this. And, and I, I understand the confusion. I didn't understand it for some time either. But when you do understand this, it makes you understand a lot more what the Bible says, what Paul reveals to us about who we are and what belongs to us. Anyway, back to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he, were after, he afterward a- hungered. The Folks, Jesus did not was not led by the Holy Ghost into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted of the devil. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for the purpose of preparing himself, separating himself for the ministry which he's about to begin. But you know as well as I do that anytime time you try to take a step toward God, the devil's right there to hassle you. For 40 days, the devil is bugging Jesus. For 40 days, the devil is, is bringing to a head what the Holy Ghost summarizes it. At the end of this thing, this was apparently the devil's finest and, and strongest temptation against Jesus. After now Jesus is hungry for 40, after 40 days without eating, the devil said to him, verse 3, If thou be the Son of God, please notice what he's questioning. If you are the Son of God, is that not the number one way the devil comes against you? If you really have the, the power of God inside of you, why don't you do this? If you really have a healing anointing, why don't you go into the hospitals and just clear them out? And unfortunately, some people in their foolishness, their immaturity, will yield to the devil's temptation and try to do something stupid on their own and fall flat on their face. And many many times it brings reproach on Christ. Notice how the devil operates. If you're the son of God, may I ask you a question first and foremost? Is Jesus under any obligation to prove who he is to the devil? Neither are you. If the devil didn't already know who you were because of your, the life of God on the inside of you, he wouldn't be bugging you to begin with. He doesn't bug unsaved people by saying, well, if you're the son of God or if you're the righteousness of God in Christ. He doesn't bug people like that that are unsaved. If thou be the son of God, command that this stone be made into bread. Jesus answered saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that pers- uh, every word of God. And the devil took him up. Here's the second temptation. The devil took him up into a high mountain and showed him to him all the kingdoms. Everybody say all. That means one, right? Every one of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, I don't know if that means every one of the kingdoms of the world that existed then or if it means every one of the kingdoms of the world that existed from Adam forward. Either way, it's all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said unto him, all this power, this word power is literally the word authority. All this authority will I give thee and the glory of them, the kingdoms of the world. I'll give the authority of the kingdoms of the world and the glory of the kingdoms of the world for that is delivered unto me. Now some people look at this and say, well, it wasn't a bona fide temptation. Jesus knew the devil was lying. He couldn't do this. But the devil said that it had been delivered unto him. And Jesus responds according to the temptation instead of saying, devil, you're a liar. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the whole purpose of what Jesus came to accomplish could be summarized in saying Jesus came to the earth to regain man's lost authority. Because that authority represents the fact that he was righteous in the sight of God when God said in Genesis 128, subdue the earth. Dominion belongs to the Righteous. So the devil said, all this authority will I give thee and the glory of them. The glory of the kingdoms. For that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Boy, you could sure talk politics here for a minute, couldn't you? The idea, my opinion. The idea that politics... Or some kind of political system is going to bring salvation to the world or going to put things back on track according to God's plan and purpose is just ludicrous as far as I'm concerned. Why? Because they're all under the devil's power. That hasn't changed. You might get a good person in there. I think we've had some, we've had a few outstanding presidents and leaders that made some tremendous strides, gains. In establishing our country in righteousness, but they've been few and far between. Another thing we may have learned over the over the years is that not everybody says that that's their goal lives out according to their plan or what they said. Okay, and the devil said unto him, "All this authority will I give thee, and the power of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will." I give it. If thou will therefore worship me, all shall be thine. I wonder if the devil's still trying to make that deal with anybody. I see certain people across the years, across the period of time that, that uh, seem to fall into that situation. Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are such a liar, this doesn't belong to you. It's not under your power. No. He said get behind me Satan for it is written thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. What does that tell us? It tells us Jesus understood it was in the devil's control. It was in the devil's power. The devil can give it to whoever he will. Jesus said I'm only going to worship God. I'm not going to try to gain authority here in the earth your way. Okay. So then if now we can see several things. Number one God made man to be the God of this world. The ruler of this world. Not ruler over everybody else. Not ruler over the creation itself in the sense that he could change it and adapt it and, and, and alter it. But man has rulership or dominion in his own life. That was God's original plan. That plan was thwarted. Because now Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4 Satan is the God of this world. Satan says, here's how I became the God of this world. Here's how I get God or obtain dominion and authority. Here's how I began to bear rule on the earth. Because it was delivered unto me. The question now becomes. Who delivered him? Who delivered this authority unto Satan? Well the only possible explanation for that. Has to be Adam. Because Adam did not do what God said. He did not keep the earth under his control. In fact he disobeyed the one commandment. That God had given him. Not to eat of the tree. Of the, fruit, uh, the fruit of the tree. Of the knowledge of good and evil. The consequence or, or penalty for that. God said. In the day that thou eat thereof, King James says, thou shalt surely die. In the original Hebrew, it means dying, thou shalt die. Well, what kind of death is it talking about? He didn't die physically that day. He didn't die for 930 years after that day. So he can't be talking about physical death being the consequence for disobedience to God. So what kind of death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. He's saying, in the day that you break my command to eat of the fruit of this tree that I'm telling you not to eat of. He said, that's when spiritual death will begin to overtake you. It will begin to rule you. It will begin to dominate you. It will have authority over you. In other words, you won't be the God of this world anymore. You will be lorded over by spiritual death. Now, folks, the definition of spiritual death is very simple. It's separation from God. So he's saying the penalty for disobedience to the command that God gave him in the Garden of Eden was that he would be separated from God. And that's where he lost control. When God speaks to him in Genesis chapter 3, after all this thing happened, he said, this is the curse that now comes upon you. He talked about a curse upon the earth. He said, before, the earth produced for you, but now it will only produce for you by the, fruit, by the sweat of your brow, which means it was producing for him in a different way before that. He said, now thorns and thistles will be brought forth, which means the earth had no thorns and thistles. God did not create thorns and thistles. They're a result of the fall of man. There was a curse that came upon woman. The curse that came upon woman was twofold. One was in childbirth. He said, now in childbirth, you'll bring forth children through labor. King James translates it pain, but it's not to the word pain. It's the word labor. It means work or effort, which means she was able to have children a lot easier than she, used, than she was after the fall. Now, I don't know if that means she had already had children before the fall. That was certainly possible. We just don't know. But we know that, she, that God says to her, now childbirth will be different. There'll be a lot more effort. There'll be a lot more travail. There'll be a lot more labor involved in childbirth than there was before. And then he said there'll be a curse, a special curse, that works between the devil and you. And he was speaking prophetically about the birth of Jesus through the virgin. He talked about a specific work that the devil would have and operate against women. And boy, if you just open your eyes spiritually, you can see that taking place in the earth around us. There's so much pressure put on women to how they look and, and all this airbrush, Photoshop stuff. And You ever seen one of those things where they, they show what the person really looks like and then how they finish them up with the, that magazine cover or something like that? It's, uh, it's pretty nasty. You might not want to look at that. I don't know. <laughs> but there are all kinds of things that are going on against the woman here on the earth. There is a war on women, folks, but it has nothing to do with politics. Well, okay, it has a little to do with politics, but not the way that they're telling you it has to do. But there is a war on women here on the earth propagated by the enemy, meaning the devil. So here Satan is the God of this world now. We know that the, that the authority, dominion has been delivered unto him. He is now the God of this world. But what is he the God of? Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. I guess we better stop and uh, back up to verse 3 to get the context. It says, but Paul's writing, he says, But if our gospel be hid, talking about the gospel of Jesus, it is hid to them that are lost. In other words, those that are born again should understand what the gospel is really about. Now, folks, the gospel that he's talking about is not just people getting saved. It's not just the knowledge that Jesus died for your sins, therefore you can be saved. That's great news. But that should just be the beginning point, the starting point for us. What does it mean now that we are saved? Who are we in Christ? What do we have in Christ and so forth? That's all part of the gospel of Jesus too. Paul said the world will be judged by his gospel. He didn't just mean the world will be judged by what he knows about Jesus dying on the cross and and the ability for people to get saved. He's not the only one that had that. Peter and John and the other apostles are preaching that before Paul ever gets saved. That's part of the reason Paul is on the road to Damascus to put people, to put Christians in prison because other people have been preaching the gospel before he ever came around. So the gospel he's talking about is who we are in Christ. The gospel he's talking about is what belongs to us because we are born again. Because Jesus is the Lord of our lives. Can you see that? And folks, I would submit to you that that's what most of the church world is is ignorant to. Not just the, the world itself, but the church world is ignorant to who we are in Christ. I would submit to you further. That if the world the lost. Came to understand what the real benefits of being saved are. Not just escape uh, hell and go to heaven. Uh, I grew up in a church that they preached heaven and hell. And I mean their purpose every year was to have a revival. Actually two times a year. that have a revival. And their purpose during that revival was to scare hell out of you. I'm not trying to make a joke. That was literally the purpose. Because they knew that they had two people, two target audiences. Number one, the people that weren't saved, they wanted to make you feel the fires of hell so that you would run to the altar to escape them. But the second group was people who were already saved that weren't living right. They wanted you to feel the fires of hell with the question that, are you sure you're really going to make it? So that you'd run to the altar to get saved again or, or rededicate your life to the Lord. Well, folks, rededicating your life to the Lord may be a good thing to do, but isn't it a better thing to do to keep living with Him? Keep living right with God? If you know that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, if you find out what God has made available to you, who wants the other? Once I found out who I was in Christ and what God would do for me and what His promises were, backsliding stopped being an issue for me. I don't care about what the world has. It's not as good as what God has. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom? Now he's talking about the unsaved. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in unto them. Now what does it mean where it says Satan is the God of this world? Well, remember what what David said. Before Jesus ever came to the earth, David wrote in the Psalms that the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. How can the earth and the fullness of the earth be God's if Satan is the God of this world? And if Satan really has, is the God of this world, how can anything of this world be used as a benefit to the people of God without God violating his own rules of dominion and authority? In other words, how can the earth produce something for the believer, contrary to the devil's will, and he never wants anything good for you. If he's really the God of this world. Or maybe we should say it this way, if he's the God of everything in this world. This word world is the word eon. It's talking about a period of time. Second Corinthians four four, it says Satan is the God of this world. Literally the God of this age. Now what age is it talking about? There have been several ages since Adam, since Adam delivered authority unto Uh, Or dominion under Satan. Adam and Eve were first in the age of innocence in the garden. Then they were under the age of moral conscience. Because there was no law, law of God. Then there was an age of the law. Then following the age of the law, there was the church age. There are other ages that we could refer to in there in between, you know, byproducts or or offshoots of some of these different ages. But literally, there have been different ages. In other words, different ways that people had access to God. Satan's been a God of this world over all of those. So what does it mean that he's the God of this world? Folks, let me submit it to you this way. I want to suggest it to you this way. Satan stops being the God of this world when? When Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. So we know the end point. We know the beginning point of the age. Of Satan being the God of this world. When Adam delivered it to him in the Garden of Eden. We know the end point. When the millennium is established here on the earth. The thousand year reign after the tribulation period. But between Adam. Between the Garden of Eden. The fall. We'll call it the fall. Between the fall and the millennium. Satan is the God of this world. What is that? age referring to what does that age entail satan is the god of the world system of fallen man he didn't become being the, the god of this world he didn't start being the god of this world until man fell and he doesn't continue being the god of this world when man comes back with jesus to establish a rule here on the earth Now, the Bible says that the earth has grown and travailing until that time. Until the manifestations of the Son of God. Think about what that means. That means the earth, fallen earth, subject now. We know that it's subject to, the, to the, the, the fall of man because the earth changed. Now it's starting to produce, it began to produce thorns and thistles and so forth. That wasn't part of the plan. The earth was perfect. Everything God made in the earth was perfect. God said so. But then when man falls, things change even on the earth. So therefore, now the Bible says that the earth is groaning and travailing. Even the creation itself is groaning and travailing until the manifestation of the sons of God. In other words, let me say it this way, see if it doesn't fit. Until the right people start being in control again. The earth is groaning and travailing until the right people take control and dominion once again. That would have to be true, wouldn't it? I mean, you might want to say it in a different way. We might split hairs over a few words. But it's got to be true. The concept's got to be true. So then what is Satan the God of? Satan is the God of fallen man. The earth during fallen man. So then what did Jesus do? Jesus came to restore man's dominion. While still in the earth. While still in the age of fallen man. By redeeming man from his fallen state, turn with me over to uh, turn with me over to uh, Luke chapter ten. I really thought this would be a one morning message, but with the with the pace that I'm going, who knows? This may be a twenty four ser- point part series. I don't know. We'll have to see. But I can tell right now I'm not going to be able to get through some of the the things that are already on my heart. Luke chapter 10. Jesus sends the 70 out. He's already commissioned the 12. He has um, delegated his authority here on the earth. Remember in John chapter 3, I think we talked about this when we were talking about man being a spirit being. John chapter 3 Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says good master we know or rabbi we know that you are sent from God because no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. In other words Nicodemus recognized what everybody else should recognize and that is only God can do miracle things. So if somebody's doing miracles the way that Jesus was doing miracles God has to be with them. So he says very simply we know that we recognize that there might be a lot of other stuff we don't know but that much we know what did Jesus say? You cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven except you be born again. Now some people have thought that Jesus changed the subject to talk to him about what was most important. He did not. Jesus is explaining to him this is the the miracles are a part of the kingdom of heaven. And the only way in is through a new birth. Why? Because you're fallen man. You cannot exercise dominion. You cannot exercise rule or authority. You cannot work in the miracle working power of God while you're in a fallen state. So you must be born again. And he explains to him what being born again is. Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, commissions his, the 70, just like he commissioned the, 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 the 12. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 9, he commissioned the 12. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 10 tells us the same thing. He commissioned the 12 and he says, all right, now go do the works that I was doing. He tells them to heal the sick. He tells them to to do all kinds of stuff. Miracle power. Now he does the same thing with the 70. In other words, Jesus' authority, which was not because he was the son of God. He said so. Jesus' authority was based on something other than just being the son of God. It was based on the fact that he was an anointed of the Holy Ghost, sent with a specific mission from God the Father, but that he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. How then could Jesus delegate his authority? We'll talk about that next time. Well, we will talk about that next time. But folks, for me, that's the key. See, if Jesus delegated his authority because he was the son of God, then okay, that's an easy answer. That's an easy way to look at it. And we say, but then we're left with, but what about us? If he's operating in authority here on the earth, meaning doing miracles, signs and wonders and miracles, let's say it this way overcoming the laws of nature. By that I mean for somebody that's sick. The laws of nature would be for that sickness to progress. He breaks those laws of nature and heals. He broke the laws of physics. He walked on the water, he multiplied loaves and fishes. That's what I mean by breaking the laws of nature. He gained some kind of authority. He had some kind of authority. Remember, there's only two ways you can get it. It's either conferred, delegated to you, in other words, or you have to win it by conquest. Jesus had authority that broke the laws of nature. And he delivered that authority to other people. So not only was that authority given to him some way or another, but it was also his Possession, so that he could delegate it to others as well. Well, has Jesus conquered anything when he was here on the earth? Not really. He conquered death and hell when he went to the cross, but but that doesn't explain his earthly ministry. So if you, if there's only two ways to get authority or dominion, and conquest is not one of them, yet he does conquer, but that's later after he goes to the cross and is raised from the dead. How then did he have authority? He had authority because it was conferred upon him. But wait a minute. God can't be an Indian giver. If he gave it to Adam and Adam gave it to Satan. How can Jesus now be, have authority conferred or delegated unto him? Because Satan's authority only goes to the extent of fallen man. When Jesus comes to the earth born of a virgin. He bypasses the fall of man. That's why he had to be born of a virgin. He is born independent of the law of sin and death that's passing from one generation to the next generation to the next generation through human birth. Because that which provides the life for the body, the Old Testament says in numerous places that the life of the body is in the blood. That which provides the blood for the baby, the fetus, the embryo, I don't even know what the sages are, in the womb. That which provides the blood, which is the life of the body, is provided by the male sperm. God bypasses that and does whatever he does inside of Mary. So that Jesus is born untainted by fallen man. So what does that tell us? That tells us Jesus' authority here on the earth was because he was righteous not just because he was the son of God. Now, you know, this may be what was first, chicken or the egg. But was Jesus the son of God because he was born of a virgin? Or was he born of the virgin because he was the son of God? I don't want to get into that argument. That doesn't matter to me. The point very simply is this. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man in a spectacularly supernatural way through the virgin birth. I have a problem with some of the church that, that shies away from the virgin birth. Without the virgin birth, you have no righteousness. It may seem like an unimportant issue or something that people don't want to get into the controversy about. But it's important, folks. If it wasn't important, God wouldn't have done it. God does not waste his time with unimportant issues. The fact is very simple this. Jesus had authority here on the earth. Now, that, that, that does not have to do with his anointing. I'm talking about had authority. Jesus had authority on the earth. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Remember the story? John chapter 2, I think it is. Jesus turned the water into wine. He has never before performed a miracle. It's the first miracle. The Bible says specifically it's the first miracle that he performed. Why did his mother tell the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it? What does she know about him, having lived with him for 30 years, never having seen a miracle... Never having seen Jesus perform a miracle, he's never healed the sick, never done any miracle work whatsoever. What did she know about him to tell the servants after Jesus seems to get upset with her and say, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. In other words, mom, what are you trying to get me involved in this for? She turns to servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. She seems to have some inside information here. She seems to know something about her experience through his lifestyle, through his lifetime About the stuff he says. Man that really works. So whatever he says. You make sure to do exactly what he says. I don't care if it doesn't make sense to you. Do whatever he says do. Why? Because he was righteous. He was righteous before he ever performed a miracle. He was righteous because he was born. Separate from. The system of fallen man. And that was the source. Of his authority in his own life. Now once he's anointed of the Holy Ghost, baptized by John in the Jordan River, anointed of the Holy Ghost, now it's a different ballgame. Not only is he individually righteous with his personal authority, now he's commissioned by God to go do miracle works. And I believe, personal opinion, I believe that's the reason that he had the spirit without measure because of his own righteousness. I don't have the spirit without measure. Neither do you. We have it divided among us. Jesus didn't divide it with anybody. He had the spirit without measure. What does that mean? That means he had the power of God. That was delegated or conferred upon him. To do the work of of redemption. That he was sent here on the earth to do. What was Jesus sent to do? He was sent to redeem fallen man. He was sent to undo the fallen mankind system. So he commissions the the seventy. He tells them. Verse 8. Whatsoever city you enter. And they receive you. Eat such things that are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein. Notice receiving them. Was necessary for them to be able to heal the sick. And when you heal the sick. Say unto them. The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Which must mean. Has to mean that healing is part of the kingdom of God. I don't know how you can come up with any other conclusion. And to whatsoever city you enter. And they receive you Not. They might not receive you. If they don't. Go your way out into the streets of the same city. And say. Even the very dust of your city. Which cleaves on us. We do wipe off against you. In other words. We're not responsible here. For anything that happens. Notwithstanding this. But be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. In other words. Go into the streets of the city. And say. We're not responsible for anything that happens here. We came. Doing the work that Jesus sent us to do. Know this. That the kingdom of God was here to heal your sick, to help and deliver your people, and you're the ones that refused it. The responsibility is yours. That's what he's saying. Verse 17, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. If you go back and look in those previous verses, you will not find one word spoken. About the devil casting out the devil or any other thing regarding the devil. Yet they come back and say Lord everything you said would work did work. And even the devil is subject to us through your name. How in the world is the devil subject to them. Or have they exercised authority over the devil. As unrighteous men. Unrighteous men don't have authority over the devil folks. That's why when Adam fell, that authority and dominion on the earth was transferred to the devil. Because he became the God of the fallen man system. How then can the 70 exercise authority over the devil? Because they're operating in the name of a righteous man. Jesus says, here's why this works. Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold... I give unto you a th- power, literally the word authority. I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. That's a different word. That means ability. I give you authority over all the ability of the devil. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice verse 20. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. <clears throat> Please notice two things. Notice verse 18, he said, here's why righteous men have authority over the devil. Because he's a defeated foe. He was defeated before Jesus ever went to the cross. Because God threw him out of heaven. He's not defeated on the earth. At that point in time, he's not defeated on the earth. He was defeated in heaven and cast into the earth. Yet, God, who is the author of mankind, the author of righteous man... When he finds a righteous man to do his work, has the same authority over the devil as God did when God threw him out of heaven. And then notice Jesus concludes with verse 20 saying, but don't get happy because the devil is under your control or because the spirits have to obey you. Please notice this. <clears throat> let, me, let me make this comment. I'm running out of time, so let me make this comment real quickly. One thing I noticed about Jesus in his earthly ministry, he didn't try to control the devil. I see a lot of Christians trying to control the devil. Nowhere does the Bible say you can control him. It says you have authority over him. Well, what's the limits or the boundaries of your authority? Not anything and everything the devil does. You have authority over the devil in the limits or the boundaries of your own life. Jesus did not go looking for the devil. I know it sounds good and and we try to get people pumped up about that and, and stuff like that. Jesus didn't go looking for the devil. People that know who they are in Christ, they don't go looking for the devil. You're going to find him enough on your own. No reason to look. Let me, let me, uh, well, notice what Jesus said. Don't rejoice because the devils are subject to you. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, he's saying you have a promise. Talking to them, this is different for you and me. But they had a promise of the righteousness of God. They had a promissory note on that righteousness because they were followers of Jesus. All that's left between them in their condition at that point in time in Luke chapter 10. And the righteousness of God being imparted to them or them being made righteous in God's sight. The only thing that has to change is Jesus going to the cross and being raised from the dead. Otherwise, they are on that track. They were followers of Jesus. They have, therefore, a promissory note on the righteousness of God that even the prophets of the Old Testament spoke about. So Jesus is saying, here's what you need to be rejoicing about. You need to rejoice because of your relationship with God, which for them was a promissory note, but for us is already done. What does that mean? I grew up in the neighborhood until I was about... uh, Oh, what, 14 years old, 13, 14 years old, something like that. I grew up in a neighborhood where I had a good friend that lived down the street. Actually, one block over, but down the street. And he had a dog, big old collie dog. This dog was great. We'd ride him. He was just great. <laughs> Sweet old dog, but, man, he would chase cars like you've never seen. Cars would turn the corner. They'd have to slow down going down my hill and, and, and turn onto the street where he lived. And, uh, and boy when they slow down for that turn he would be all over these cars barking like crazy I mean he sounded like something was about to die in a hurry you know I never saw one of those cars stop for that dog you know why because the car wasn't worried about the dog the people in the car had somewhere to go and they were more conscious and more focused on where they were going than some dog barking on the outside of the car It seems to me that the devil is like the dog that barks and chases the car. And too many Christians are stopping to try to deal with the dog. But somebody that knows who they are in Christ, knows what their mission is here in the earth, you don't have to stop and deal with the dog every time he barks. Just going about your business. That's what Jesus does. Jesus does not go looking for the devil. Jesus does not try to control the devil. He does not walk around saying, I'm the Son of God. Where are you, Mr. Devil? But he does make statements like this. He says to the disciples at the Last Supper in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I will not say much more unto you now. I've already told you about the Holy Ghost, but I'm not going to say much more unto you now because the Prince of this world cometh. In other words, the God of this world, the God of the age of fallen man. The prince of this world comes and he has nothing in me. In other words, Jesus knew who he was. If you and I know who we are, why are we going to spend our time with the devil? You'll come upon him often enough. You'll have opportunity and and the the necessity to, to, to exercise authority over him plenty and often enough. Why make your life focused around the devil and what he does? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying don't try to rejoice because the devil is subject to you. Focus on the fact that you have a relationship with God. Your names are written in heaven. In other words, focus on who you are. Can you see it? The Bible says, well, let me close with this. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Rather than quoting this, I think it might be good for us to see it and then just let this be a stopping point. Notice in verse 17, it's a verse that we quote a lot. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, that means if he makes Jesus the Lord of his life, he is a new creature. What new creature? He is no longer fallen man. He's born again. His spirit is recreated. His spirit is made new. He is a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being, one translation says. Old things are passed away. What old things? Everything regarding and pertaining to fallen man. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Notice verse 21. For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin. That we might be made. Everybody say made. That we might be made. I want you to understand folks. It's a change of nature. It's not God just saying. Okay now righteousness is yours. No. That's what the new birth is about. It's about the old spirit. The spiritually dead spirit. The one that's separated from God. Being replaced by a spirit. That is the equivalent and the equal. Of when Adam was created in the garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus was born of a virgin, only it's better. Because both Adam and Jesus had the opportunity. They had the ability to fall, to sin, and therefore become fallen man. Adam took that opportunity and fell. Jesus resisted that opportunity and maintained his righteousness. You no longer have that opportunity. You've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, your righteousness doesn't depend on you. Adam's did. Jesus' is did, but yours doesn't. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on what Jesus did. Now somebody says, well, but does that mean that somebody can't, once they're saved, they can't get out? Why in the world do we want to have that discussion? <laughs> who in the right mind wants out? Yeah, the Bible says there are certain conditions whereby somebody can get out, but who wants out? That's what I mean. Your righteousness doesn't depend on you. Your righteousness doesn't change based on your behavior. Jesus's would have. Adam's did. But because now you have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And it wasn't according to your own efforts. Your own well-being or your own doings. Now that righteousness cannot be undone by you. Through failing or falling or stumbling into temptation and sin. Can you see that? John Lake was talking about this talking about spiritual dominion, and he came, from it, came at it from a different angle, but he was talking about the, the only life that we have is a life that's in Christ Jesus, and apart from him, there is no life, and, and so forth. And, and he made this statement. He said, you know, so many churches preach fear of the devil, and I don't think they mean to. I don't think they know that they are. This is me talking now, not, not Lake's quote. But I don't think churches and, and Christians intend to preach fear of the devil. But when they talk about just trying to get by some way or another... Bless you. When they talk about somehow or another just holding out to the end. Just suffering through life and so forth. Folks, the Bible does say you'll suffer. It says you'll suffer persecution. if You live godly in Christ Jesus. It does not say you're going to suffer through life. It says you'll experience hardship and adversity and t- tough times and so forth. But they pass. It's like the Bible says over and over and over again. And it came to pass. It doesn't come to stay. It comes to pass. So there are difficulties and there are hard times. But every time the church or, the, or Christians, either in their own thinking or churches preach or whatever the case is, about how tough this life is, they're discounting who they are in Christ and they're preaching fear of the devil. And Lake said this. He said, if every Christian would get a moment's glance, just a moment reala- realization, revelation, Of who we are in Christ and the power that we have in him. And how much greater it is than any power that the devil has to make persons sick. Or to keep them in bondage in any way whatsoever. He said it was literally transformed their life. He's talking from experience because that's what transformed his. Folks, there is no struggle between God and the devil. Where the devil is able to hold out. None whatsoever. That's why the Bible says things like greater is he that's in you. Than he that's in the world. We're more than conquerors. It doesn't just say we're conquerors. It says we're more than a conqueror. If you had any idea. If there was any. any and this is where I'm going. I, I think this is. I, I, I don't know. I'm inclined to think. That this is what, the, what God is trying to get across to me. If we could see. The incomparable. Measure. Of the power of God in us. As compared to what the the devil tries to do in people's lives. Maybe in their own lives or whatever the case is. You're never going to have another devil problem in your life. Look at Jesus. Not only did he not try to control the devil. He didn't have a devil problem. There was never a day where the disciples came to him and said. Master we need this. And he said oh gee. Wasn't planning on that today. How long has it been like that? any of you guys see this coming? Never. He was never taken by surprise. That doesn't mean he knew everything that was coming on. But it didn't matter. Here's what we need. Great. God's here today. He never had a devil problem. So you may be in a place. Where you're walking through a hard time. You're walking through a desert place. Peter talked about this. He talked about rejoicing. Though if need be you're involved in, uh, in, uh, in manifold temptations. In other words hard places. It's like this. It's like the devil is the God of fallen mankind. And so as a result, the earth is under his influence. And so there may be places that you and I travel in this earth where it looks like we're walking through a desert place. Doesn't look like there's enough to eat. Doesn't look like there's enough to drink. Doesn't look like there's any way out. The Bible says that we can rejoice knowing that we'll walk through it to a lush valley on the other side. That's the Christian life. Not that everything's always going to be a tiptoe through the tulips type thing. But even when you are in a hard place, you can rejoice knowing this hard place won't last. And I'll make it to the place of provision. I'll make it to the place of strength. I'll make it to the place of health. That's the spiritual dominion that we have. Because Jesus has defeated the enemy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the dominion that you've given us through Christ Jesus. We thank you, dear Heavenly Father, that Jesus has restored us from our fallen state to being made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of each and every one of us, that we would see what is the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Give us a glimpse, Father, just a glimpse of how much greater. The power of God is in us than any work that the devil can do. Show us who we are, Father. Show us that because we've been made righteous, we can truly do what Jesus told us as disciples to do, and that is the same and greater works than he did. We bless you, Father. We worship your name. We rejoice. Because our names are written in heaven. We are one with you. Righteousness is ours. Therefore we understand father. Even as the scripture said. Since you delivered Jesus. Your best. Up for us all. To make us righteous. To recreate our spirits. How can you withhold any good thing from us. What a privilege it is, Father, to know we've been restored to a place of dominion in our own lives. Not to control the devil, but to stop him when he invades our territory. To put an end to his maneuvers when he brings an attack against that which God has purchased. What a privilege, Father, to walk as sons of God here on the earth. In Jesus' precious name, amen.